All right, please, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn back to the book, the epistle of Ephesians, uh, be in chapter 4 and looking at verses 1 through 16. So it's Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. <clears throat> Just as a reminder of our context, Paul has put forward the mystery of Christ, which is that believing Gentiles are now fellow citizens the commonwealth of Israel with Jewish believers. And these two are now members of the one family of God. Last week we saw that through the church, God has realized his eternal purpose, that he would unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And having completed his exposition of the mystery of Christ, Paul moves into the practical implications for how we in this newly constituted family of God ought to live. So with that, let's turn to the text. Again, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. <clears throat> I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. <clears throat> and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the ministry of or for the work of ministry, excuse me, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father, uh, again, we come to you so thankful that you have given us your word and you've given it to us in our language where we are able to read it and to know what you are saying uh, to your church. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what we have read, uh, that you would help me to rightly exposit this text, that it would be edifying to your saints and most of all glorifying to your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, passage begins, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now recall that Paul was literally 
under house arrest for having preached the inclusion of the Gentiles. So again, this is not a metaphorical, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Literally, he is a prisoner for the Lord. Um, <clears throat> the mention of this again shows that Paul was modeling what he was about to call his readers to do. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is the calling of believing Jews and Gentiles into the one family of God and thus unto the holiness of God, which is what we saw last week, right? The church is the one people of God called out of the world by God to be his holy possession. Whereas you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, now you have been made alive together with Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or the way that Peter states it, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are those foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Think about it for a moment. We talked about this with my, my kids in Sunday school. Think about this for a moment. What does a proper image do? A perfect, pristine image. I'm not talking about a shattered image. But a perfect image. What does it do? Imagine looking at yourself in a perfectly clean, uh, not damaged mirror, right? What does the image you see in the mirror do? Perfectly does whatever you do, right? <clears throat> Likewise, we have been called as image bearers of Christ. And so we should walk as he walked in love. How are we to, practically, I'm asking this question practically, how are we to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? We can say this general concept, but okay, let's get down to the nitty gritty. How do we do that? Paul has five essential ways in which we do this. This is not an exhaustive list, okay? We could probably find other passages that say other things we should do, but here he lists these things. They are humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and eagerness to maintain the church's unity in the Spirit. All right, the first of these is humility. One of the definitions I found for this word that I think really captures the idea is that humility is a deep sense of one's littleness. Or another definition I found was more simply, it is to have a modest opinion of oneself. In other words, we should not rush to make much of ourselves. We should not be arrogant and boastful about ourselves. But rather, we should prefer our brothers as our Lord taught us. Christ's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus explained to the twelve, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Likewise, Paul commands the Philippian church, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is so radically different than the way this world, the old order that is passing away, works. The world teaches that the supreme value we should seek is our own pleasure, our own glory. It teaches us that we are the gods of our own lives, so to speak, and that, uh, and that we should live in such a way as to glorify ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Something else we talked about with my kids uh, this morning, uh, the Tower of Babel, what they say. We're going to build this tower to make a name for ourselves, right? That same spirit still is in the hearts of unregenerate man. And frankly, we still struggle with it. And we are regenerate because we're not perfected yet. John MacArthur states this point well. Quote, the world exalts pride, not humility. Throughout history, fallen human nature, ruled by Satan, the prince of this world, has shunned humility and advocated pride. And just as an aside, there's an entire month that is now devoted to pride. Okay. All right. Anyway, MacArthur continues, for the most part, humility has been looked on as a weakness, uh, or at, looked on as weakness and impotence, something ignoble to be despised. Ostentation, boasting, parading, and exalting are the world's stock in trade, end quote. <clears throat> This is especially so in our democratic society where the will of the people is exalted above all. Now, I'm not up here to try to preach against democracy, so don't think that's where I'm going with this. Um, it's why we see things like transgenderism, the idea that man is capable, even above his creator, of defining what he is. Or gay mirage, the idea that man is capable even above his creator of defining what covenantal marital love is. No fault divorce, the idea that marriage, the bedrock covenantal institution of society, is nothing more than a legal contract between two consenting adults to be entered and exited on a whim. And legalized abortion on demand, the murder of the most helpless of God's image bearers. But it's also why we... We have been brought into the family of God. Might look at a brother in Christ with condescension or contempt. It's not just them out there. We are still struggling with this pride thing too. <clears throat> Mankind is still committing the same basic sin as its father. Namely, that they put themselves in the place of God through their pride. Again, MacArthur points out, the first sin was pride, and every sin after that has been in some way an extension of pride. But creation is not a democracy. Let me say that again. Creation is not a democracy. The will of the people is not God. 
Mankind does not get a vote and is in no way on equal footing with God. Rather, Jesus is King and Lord over all. All things were created through him and for him. As the Westminster Catechism states, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I heard, heard it put, maybe that should have actually been said, glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think that's an accurate thing to say as well. <clears throat> so, uh, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Put it another way, serving Christ means nothing less than serving, not domineering over, serving Christ's bride, the church. It might mean more, but it certainly does not mean anything less. Since pride was the first sin of the old humanity, how fitting that humility would be the first principle set forward by Paul in which the new humanity in Christ is to walk. Listen to how one ancient writer describes the humility of the early church. This is from the letter to Diognetus, which is generally dated somewhere between 130 and 200 AD. <clears throat> so, uh, the author of the letter writes, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all. They beget children. They do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That was the early church. And it should be, and I think in many ways is, the church of today. It should be how we live our lives. That's the way we should be viewed by those who are outside. The next way Paul lists that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling is that we should be gentle or meek. <clears throat> contrary, again, contrary to worldly wisdom, meekness is not weakness. As one Bible commentator puts it, meekness is rather strength under control. Scripture tells us whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And our Lord himself tells us, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Meekness or gentleness is the logical outworking of humility. Humility is a disposition of the soul, and gentleness is the action that results from that disposition. Or to say it another way, humility is the root, and gentleness is the fruit. Those who are humble are to maintain self-control, or I should say they're able to maintain self-control, and gentleness when disputes arise, because at the root they are not concerned with attacks against their own persons, but only for the good of neighbor and the glory of God. Consider again our Lord's example. Scripture says of our Lord, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Meaning he builds up the weak rather than crushing them. He doesn't lord it over them, he serves them. In fact, Christ implores the weak, the weak like us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Likewise, we should be champions for the weaker brethren. The humble, meek man is able to exercise the next virtue in Paul's list as well, which is patience. The Greek word being translated literally means long-passioned or long-tempered. The idea is of one who is not quickly angered, but rather is able to suffer long, ills against himself for the good of the other. Uh, John Stott comments, well, excuse me, let me say this first, first thing first. The next virtue that goes along with patience uh, is that we bear one another in love. Now, John Stott comments, patience is long-suffering towards aggravating people, <coughs> such as God and Christ has shown towards us. While forbearing one another speaks of that mutual tolerance without which no group of human beings can live together in peace. Um, it's just a fact of life in a fallen world. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves. <laughs> um, sometimes we annoy each other. I mean, it's true. Um, and I know it's hard to imagine, but that might mean that maybe you are the one who... Never mind. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, we are called to patiently and mutually forbear one another. The church is the new humanity bearing the image of Christ. This is a process. In one sense, we are already made after the image of Christ as we are now, currently, new creations of the Father in Him. But in another sense, already not yet, we are still being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. That means we each continue to struggle with sin and ignorance. Every so often, those questions come around in our catechism. You know the ones I'm talking about. Uh, and we confess these things of ourselves together. Question, why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer, because I'm ignorant. Question, why do you need Christ as a priest? Answer, because I'm guilty. 
Question, why do you need Christ as king? Answer, because I am weak and helpless. And it's true about all of us. Apart from Christ, we are all ignorant, guilty, and weak. So knowing that it's true about ourselves, we should be patient and forbearing with one another, seeking to mutually encourage each other in brotherly love as we all grow up in this faith. All of us have growing to do. And we shouldn't get annoyed when we see immaturity in another brother. Rather, we should try to encourage him to grow up. We should grow up ourselves. The final virtue <clears throat> mentioned here by Paul is that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This language is actually included in our church covenant here. It's not just binding because of scripture. That's ultimately why it's binding. But it's also binding because when you became a member here, you vowed to do that. You covenanted with us to do that. Paul is talking about a unity that is created by the Holy Spirit. This is not something that is drummed up by the institutional church. This is something created by God within the hearts of believers. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, applying the work of Christ to individual believers, and effectually calling us into adoption as sons of the Father. Cumulative effect is that he calls us into the one family of God whereby we are bound to each other in Christ. But if this is the work of the Spirit, and manifestly it is the work of the Spirit, then why are we told that we must be eager to, be, to maintain it? Because it's the work of the Spirit, right? Why are, we, why are we doing maintaining it? Again, Stott gives an analogy which I think is helpful for answering this question. Uh, he tells of a family composed of a husband, a wife, and three kids. Strife and contention enters in and damages all the various relationships within the family. The husband and the wife are separated. The children move off to different countries. Once they grow up, uh, they lose all contact with each other. Are they not still one family, though? Yes. Yes, they are. But then he asks this question. Would we try to excuse or minimize the tragedy of their disunity by appealing to the indestructibility of their family ties? Well, no. No. Rather, we should urge the family to demonstrate its unity by being practically reconciled to one another. So likewise, we should eagerly seek a practical demonstration of what is necessary uh, to be the to the very being of the church. Whether we get along or not, if we're saved, we're all in the church. But that should be shown in practical reality. And that's what we're striving for. That's where we that's what we're to be doing here in this scenario. Um, this is striving to maintain the unity of uh, the spirit and the bond of peace. Um, we are united with each other in the spirit by the bond of peace. That is Christian love. The bond of peace is Christian love. Think about it. The apostle who was literally bound under house arrest commands the Ephesian church to be bound in love to each other. 
pretty neat. <clears throat> this includes unity within local congregations, which is what I think Paul actually had in mind here. I think he was talking about in the context uh, of a local congregation. But I think it also means unity with other lowercase o orthodox local churches. We confess one holy universal church. This does not necessarily entail institutional unity as the Roman Catholic or various uppercase O Orthodox churches profess. What it means is what Paul moves on to show next. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, uh, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The fact that there is one body simply means there is, in the ultimate sense, one church. There's not separate Jewish and Gentile churches. There's not a black church and a white church and a Hispanic church and fill in the blank with whatever ethnicity. <clears throat> in fact, in the sense that Paul's talking about here, there's not even a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Methodist and so on and so forth church either. There's only one holy universal church in which the one spirit dwells, causing the body to come alive. What is the body without the spirit? It's dead. You lose your soul, your, your body's dead. The body joined to its spirit is living and vibrant. And likewise, the church, the body of Christ, is formed, filled, and enlivened by the Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit who calls us into the body of Christ and gives us life in Christ also calls us into the hope found in Christ, which is our inheritance with Christ. This is the same Spirit who is the guarantee or the earnest payment of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. And this hope is the one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This hope is that we will enjoy eternal life and communion with God, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that we may rule and reign over the cosmos with him. Just simply we enjoy sweet fellowship with God in glory forever. And this brings us to our one Lord. A Lord is a person who has authority, control, power over others. A master, chief, or ruler. Not my definition, I looked that one up. Continuing with the analogy of the body, the Lord is the head which rules the body, determining the body's ends and directing the body's actions in achieving those ends. Likewise, Christ is the one head of his body, the church. As we, re uh, as we read earlier in the epistle, the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And our confession says it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ is the 
head of the church by the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. That is why we believe in the regulative principle here, which says we only practice those things explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures, or another way to put that, those things directly commanded by Christ or indirectly commanded by Christ through his appointed representatives, the apostles and prophets. It's all Christ's authority. There is one faith, which I take to mean not the subjective faith that God gives to each individual believer. Rather, this refers to the one set of doctrines to which all Christians hold. Uh, this would be the same faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that was mentioned by Jude. For example, it would be something like the Apostles' Creed that we confess here each Lord's Day. Any Christian should be able to recite that with us. They affirm all of the things contained in that Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> this would be the core Christian truths such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ, that is, he's truly God, he's truly man, he's one Lord, um, the doctrine of salvation by Christ alone, things like this. We, we all hold those in common. One faith. One holy universal church confesses all these things, even though we might disagree about secondary and tertiary issues. One such issue, though, uh, where we do have disagreement is that of baptism. What is baptism? What does baptism do? What is the proper mode of baptism? What are the proper subjects of baptism? There's been disputes over all these questions pretty much going back to the beginning. We must admit and lament that institutionally speaking, Questions like these have put dividing walls in the church. I loved my Reformed, Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. We are divided over an issue which has often caused us to separate into local, separate local congregations. They're in their Presbyterian churches, we're in our Baptist churches. They believe baptism is to be given to believers and their children and that all modes are valid, given to their children on the basis of their faith, not the faith of their children. We believe and teach that the only proper subjects of baptism are those making incredible profession of faith, and that the only mode of immersion is valid. That's it. For us, it goes back to the regulative principle I just mentioned. We have no explicit or necessarily contained commands or examples in Scripture of children being baptized on the basis of their parents' faith. It's just not there. Likewise, it seems the teaching of the New Testament is that baptism is only by immersion. Otherwise, some of the things that we're told that uh, baptism depicts kind of messes it up if somebody's not fully immersed in the water. Fact is, both sides cannot be right. One of us has to be in a state of disobedience to the way our one Lord commanded baptism to be administered. 
This reminds me of a funny story I once heard a pastor, another pastor, tell. There were two pastors who had a disagreement over a certain issue. And uh, they lovingly argued the point for hours. You know? And uh, finally, one pastor looks over to the other and he says, uh, here's the deal. We both love God. We both serve God. You serve him in your way, and I serve him in his. <laughs> um, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it was a pedo-baptist uh, pastor, ironically, that said that. Anyway, um, <clears throat> in all seriousness, how are we to understand this conundrum in light of the apostolic teaching that there is only one baptism? We would agree, up to this point, all the ones were united. How do we understand this now? We understand it in terms of what we hold in common about baptism, about what it is. Namely, that baptism is a sacrament of the church, which is to be administered by the outward element of water to new disciples of Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It is the means of entrance into the visible church of Jesus Christ. We agree on all that. As Bible commentator Albert Barnes states, quote, The essential thing in the argument before us is that there has been a consecration to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by the application of water. Thus understood, the argument is one that will be felt by all who have been devoted to God by baptism. They have taken the same vows upon them. They have consecrated themselves to the same God. They have made the same solemn profession of religion. Water has been applied to one and all as the emblem of the purifying influences of the Holy Spirit. And having been thus initiated in a solemn manner into the same profession of religion, they should be one. And so we are one in point of fact. Though we may be divided over secondary issues, both Pado and Credo, Baptists who exercise the gift of saving faith in our one Lord are part of the one body enlivened by the one spirit and we share one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That is, we are all children of the Father and brothers and sisters of Christ and each other. We are joined in fellowship with the triune God and all those in him. All those believing in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we can look at that Pado baptist brother and acknowledge, that's my brother. <clears throat> but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When we are saved into Christ's church, we are gifted by the Spirit of Christ in some way for the building up of the body of Christ. The grace mentioned here by Paul is not a reference to saving grace, but to gifting grace. It is a grace that accompanies saving grace. It is the same idea he writes about to the Romans when he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes on to talk about certain of these gifts and how they are to be used for the building up of the church. Similarly, as we heard in our New Testament reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 12, we are called into one body, but the body is not composed of one member. 
Just as the eyes are gifted for a certain task and the ears are gifted for a certain task and the hands and feet have their own functions, so it is with the body of Christ. We each are brought into the body with a certain gifting for the proper functioning of the body. We each have need of the other's gifting for the proper functioning of the body. So we can rightly say every individual in this church needs every other individual in this church. Need each other, not just desire each other. Should desire each other as well, but we need each other for the church to properly function. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. This quotation, uh, the beginning of that portion in verse 8, <clears throat> this quotation comes from Psalm 68, 18, which is a psalm proclaiming Yahweh's victory over his enemies and the deliverance of his people from their enemies. The Jews associated it with the Feast of Pentecost. Paul applies it to the work of Christ, who is Yahweh in the flesh. And this is not insignificant, because at the Feast of Pentecost, the church received the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifting that he gives to the church. Now, it is a common interpretation, this portion of scripture, that all this talk of ascending and descending is a reference to Christ descending into Hades or hell before rising from the dead and ascending into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Somewhere along the way, somebody added that to the Apostles' Creed and it wasn't originally in there. And uh, with good reason, because that's not what this is talking about at all. Um, there is no mention of Hades. There is no mention of hell in this text. It says, Christ descended into the lower regions, which means he descended to earth. In other words, it is talking about his humiliation in the incarnation, in the perfectly obedient life he lived, and finally in the obedient death that he died. We started talking about we should be humble, and this is talking about Christ being humble, right? By making himself nothing, as it were, he was exalted to the seat of power at the right hand of the Father. Paul more fully makes the same point to the Philippians. In chapter 2 of Philippians, he writes this, Have this mind among yourselves. There's the command again, by the way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So there's no excuse. It is ours. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why we can say Christ has triumphantly ascended on high, leading a host of captives, which is a reference to all his enemies whom he has defeated, 
and that he gives gifts to men, particularly to his church who shares in the spoils of war. God defeated all these things through Christ, through his incarnation in the life he lived, the death he died. And then when he rose from the grave and ascended to the seat of power, every name or every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord because he humbled himself. Paul moves into the particular gifts that Christ gives to his church. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which is simply another word for pastors and teachers. Earlier in the epistle, he said the apostles and prophets were actually the very foundation which the church is built upon. This is still true today, despite these offices having ceased. The reason for them ceasing is that divine revelation is complete, or in another way, their function has been fulfilled. They're still the foundation. Stott rightly asserts that the apostles were a, quote, very small and distinctive group consisting of the twelve, including Matthias, who replaced Judas, Paul, James, the Lord's brother, and possibly one or two others. They were personally chosen and authorized by Jesus and had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Lord, end quote. In light of the fact that nobody living today is an eyewitness of the risen Lord, it is safe to say there are no apostles in this sense today. However, as I said, the apostles are still the foundation of the church. What is the supreme judge for deciding all Christian doctrine and all religious controversies in the church? It is the Old Testament plus those God-breathed writings of the apostles and their closest associates, namely the New Testament. The New Testament is the apostolic witness and authority upon which Christ builds his church. Again, I will remind you of what I said when we started this series in Ephesians, that an apostle is properly someone sent or commissioned, focusing back on the authority, commissioning of the sender. Or more simply, he is a messenger, envoy, delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way. So the reason apostolic authority is foundational to and binding upon the church at all places and in all times is because it is really Christ's own authority over his church. The apostles were those <laughs> delivering and putting into effect the message and authority of the master. That's how Paul started his letter to the Ephesians, right? He identifies himself as an apostle, essentially saying everything that follows here is not my message. Christ's message. And you're going to follow it on the basis of Christ's authority. And you recognize my authority because it's Christ's authority. That's what Paul's saying as an apostle. Likewise, the office of prophet has ceased with the closing of the apostolic age and with the closing of the canon of scripture. MacArthur explains, quote, it seems the office of prophet was exclusively for work within the local church, whereas that of apostleship was a much broader ministry, not confined to any area. The prophets sometimes spoke revelation from God and sometimes simply expounded revelation already given, as implied in Acts 13.1, where they are connected with teachers. They always spoke for God, but did not always give a newly revealed message from God. 
prophets were second to the apostles, and their message was to be judged by that of the apostles. Another distinction between the two offices may have been that the apostolic message was more general and doctrinal, whereas that of the prophets was more personal and practical. The church was established upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Once the foundation was laid, the work of the apostles and prophets was finished. So that's why these gifts of the church are not active in the sense that there are human embodiments of them today. However, again, they still serve as the foundation of the church. Now, evangelists are those who, particularly, who are particularly gifted in presenting the gospel to those in the world, to outsiders. Um, for those of you who know who I'm talking about, this would be someone like Ray Comfort. If you don't know who that is, I highly recommend you go look him up on YouTube or um, I think his ministry is livingwaters.com or something like that. Um, anyway, you'll find videos of him sharing the gospel with unbelievers from all kinds of backgrounds and things like that. Okay, So I highly recommend you look him up or if you would prefer to See somebody who's coming from a Reformed Baptist perspective doing pretty much the same thing. Look up Josh Williamson. Obviously, by me naming men currently exercising this gift, it's not one that has ceased. It is still active in the church today. And we need to pray that God would raise up men and women with that gift here. We need those who intentionally, lovingly confront those outside the church with their sin and then give them the gospel. We need to be doing that. So we need to pray for that. Finally, Paul lists here pastors and teachers, taking those together. They, I do think it's separate functions. Some people think it's saying the same thing twice. I do think he's separating these as different gifts, but I'm going to take them together nevertheless. Well, I just said we need to pray about him sending you those with the gift of evangelism here, but I'm being honest, I believe Christ has abundantly blessed us here in terms of these gifts. Uh, we need to be praying that he would raise up and or send more pastors or elders because it's not good that Jason would do this alone once I leave. Not. Um, that's not saying anything negative about Jason at all. I think we all agree Jason's a wonderful pastor. Um, but the biblical pattern is that there needs to be multiple elders and there's multiple reasons for that. So be praying for him and for God to send him help in this regard. But as to the gift of teachers, we have multiple men here, and women for that matter, who have biblical wisdom and insight and the fruit of that is evident, in my opinion. I think most, if not all of us, have grown under the teaching of these brothers and sisters. And I'm thankful for them as Christ's gift to Sovereign Savior Church. He has abundantly blessed us in this regard. And we need to be thankful. <clears throat> but, what is the purpose of Christ having gifted the church with apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers? It is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, there are two primary reasons given here for God's gifting to the church, these four authoritative and teaching offices. First, it is so that saints would be equipped for the work of ministry. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here. Everyone in the church is responsible for the ministry of the church. That includes the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. I am not saying evangelists, pastors, and teachers are not responsible for the work of ministry. Absolutely not. That's all I'm saying. But it doesn't only include the evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And that's what I mean. <laughs> Saints are to learn from these men first so that they may be able to themselves do the work of ministry. Again, all the saints are gifted in some way. Preaching and teaching ministries are where the saints are discipled for Christ and thereby equipped to discern and then to exercise their spiritual gifts in church ministry. That's not going to look the same for every single individual because, again, not every single individual has the same gifting, right? But it does mean every single individual in some way should be exercising their gifts in the church's ministry. The purpose of this ministry, which is shared by all saints, is the building up of the body of Christ, which is the process whereby we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the second purpose for God's gifting uh, uh, the church uh, of these authoritative and teaching offices that we come to attain unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity in the faith. Rather than being tossed about by whatever new doctrine or fad comes along, we are to be rooted and grounded in the doctrines of Christ. Again, I'm going to bring it up, I think, what, the third time now. This is why the regulative principle is so important. Because it is a bulwark against fads. This is the foundation of our union with each other, that we are united to Christ and in the knowledge of Christ. Again, we may have disagreements about secondary issues, but all Christians are united by our common beliefs and the core tenets of the faith. Rather than being carried by every wind of doctrine, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are not to be jerks for Jesus. I'm sure you've heard of people like that, and maybe you know some people like that. These are people who speak the truth. What they say is true. Speaking the truth. And they're boldly speaking the truth. But they do it in an unloving way. They're usually arrogant and care more about winning winning a debate than caring for the soul of the other person. Tear down the other person for their ignorance and their sin, blind to the fact that they're not rightly imaging God themselves. At the same time, one of the most loving things we can do for another person is tell them the truth, particularly Christian truth those doctrines of Christ that we keep talking about. 
We need to confront people over their false doctrine and their sin. We just need to be careful that we're removing the log from our own eye in order to help our brothers with the specks in theirs. Remove that log and don't press down the speck. Help remove it. Our genuine aim in confronting others with the truth should be to build them up, not tear them down. This is especially true when we speak the truth in love to our brothers in Christ. So go on, just go use this as an example. Going back to that credo-baptist, pedo-baptist thing, right? I don't back off of my position as a credo-baptist. But I'm also not a jerk to the pedo-baptist because I love him, he's my brother. I will tell him he's wrong, but I will do that because I love him. And I won't do it in such a way as to press him down. He's probably going to do the same thing to me with his position. <laughs> Maybe that's a good example. I hope so. <clears throat> I like the way that Stott explains this. He says, quote, Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft it is not, if it is not strengthened by truth. So we have to hold these both together. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To rightly walk with each other. We have to hold these together. Together as one body, we are to grow up in every way into our head, Christ. This is the effect when every member properly exercises their spiritual gifts and everyone speaks the truth in love to one another. There is a mutual building up of the whole body so that all the individual members mature and grow in Christ-likeness. We have several kids in our congregation, right? When their bodies are in proper order, each part whole and joined properly to each other part, their bodies receive nourishment and they grow until they reach full maturity in adulthood. Likewise, when each part of Christ's body, him being the head, is whole and properly joined to the other parts, the body builds itself up by that which holds it together in harmony and nourishes it. Love. So as scripture says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And elsewhere it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, meaning the law of God. Which, of course, is an extension or is a revelation of the character of God. The idea, love, here, is not mere sentiment. It's not a, I feel love for you. It's not merely a feeling. The word used in Ephesians is agape which is, as one Greek scholar puts it, the highest form of love, charity. This is a sacrificial love. It is love in action. It is a love with teeth, so to speak. This is the sort of love Christ has for his church as he gave the ultimate sacrifice to save us. And it is the sort of love we should have for the head and the body, each member. So, may we all endeavor to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to love our Lord and his church, both those here in this local church and those in the wider universal church. May we endeavor to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And as we read in Paul's prayer last week, 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us one with Christ, also that you have made us one in Christ with each other. And now, Lord, as we turn to the supper, help us to realize and to affirm our union with him and our union with each other, our communion with him and with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.